Welcome to the Make Books Travel Podcast. I'm Marlene Seegers, co-founder of Two Seas Agency, a California-based literary agency that represents publishers, agents, and a select number of authors from around the world. On this podcast, I'll be interviewing international industry professionals who make books travel. For instance, from manuscripts to published book, from one language to another, or from page to screen. Thank you so much for listening and enjoy. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode number 21 of the Make Books Travel podcast. This is actually the last show of the season, season one. After today's episode, I'm putting my recordings on hold for a short while. Even though I won't be traveling, things will get a little crazy and intense with plenty of video meetings in the weeks leading up to and during the virtual Frankfurt Book Fair that takes place mid-October. I will gradually move to European time over the next couple of weeks. Um, as a reminder, I am based in California, so that's a nine-hour time difference to overcome. And it will be a first working on night shifts, and I'm curious to see how it will play out. In any case, the podcast will return after Frankfurt with a second season. Today, my guest is Daniel Bunyard, publishing director and head of nonfiction publishing at Penguin Michael Joseph in the UK. Dan has been looking in detail at historical sales of books, trying to pin down what people's book buying motivations and patterns are. Why did certain books sell well at a given moment in time? And why did others hardly sell any copies during that same period? These are fascinating and important questions to ask. So let's listen to my conversation with Daniel Bunyard. Hi, Dan. Thank you Hi. for joining me today. You're very How welcome. You? Thank you for asking me. I'm looking forward to discussing in particular the research you've carried out uh, with regards to book buying motivations and mm. patterns and how they're influenced by historical context. I think it's a fascinating topic. I mean, can we somehow predict which books will sell well and which ones won't? That sounds like the million dollar question, really. <laughs> I, 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 I think it is. I think it's a, sort of a bit of a, yeah, like a, a silver chalice. Um, and um, but I think it's it's. What really su surprises me is it, it's not a question we actually ask all that often in a systematic, um, uh, you know, really consistent way. Um, but yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm excited to talk to you. So thank you for asking me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But be before we go into the, um, the nitty gritty of your research, can you just briefly introduce yourself and outline your professional career so far for our listeners? Of course, yes. Yeah. So um, I'm a head of nonfiction publishing at Penguin Michael Joseph in the UK. Um, I've been there for very nearly 11 years now. And I, I started off um, in academic publishing. I, I worked for Palgrave Macmillan. I, um, I, I published um, books on philosophy and psychology and a couple of history titles and um, then uh, ended up making a quite a, a sort of a, a drastic move in a way out of academic publishing to um to work for a small independent trade publisher john blake um which has now been incorporated within bonnier but back then which was about 12 13 years ago um it was a small company and very dynamic um reacting very quickly to to trends and opportunities 
I was there and then I, I, I worked briefly at Orion and HarperCollins um, before um, uh, settling very happily um, at Penguin. All right. Thank you. And just also briefly, this has been a recurring topic, topic at the, on the podcast, the, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic that we live in. Uh, what, what's the situation in the UK currently? Um, you may have heard that the, the Frankfurt Book Fair was now cancelled also phys well, physically and it's only going to take place virtually yeah. mainly because of increasing travel restrictions from people from from other countries in europe um so yeah what what, what is it like the impact on your daily life at the moment uh, well it's been um, it's been such a, a fascinating exasperating um stressful magical uh strange time to live through um professionally and and um and personally and we've just had um just in the last couple of days there's been another change here because as the infections have been rising again um new measures have had to be brought in just at a point where um uh, sort of coincidentally i i was in um the office for the first time since march yesterday mm. um so it's it's And I think that it's a period that's been characterized by by uncertainty and um, you know sudden changes really. Um, and I I was just recalling that actually the LBF, the London Book Fair, was cancelled um, around about the same time. I think that all of this began and, and began mm -hmm. to become more severe. And I remember feeling so um, sad about that because I always look forward to seeing um, friends, publishers, and agents from um from around the world you know these opportunities and I, i do feel a bit melancholy about um not being able to to be at frankfurt this year for the same reason but hopefully um uh having become slightly more adept at using zoom um my my diary will be replete with um a, a bunch of um catch-up calls with people and i feel that um that's one thing that's been you know sort of a very nice thing about the whole period is that By and large, we've um, been reaching out to people um, to reestablish connections where we have them. And, um, you know, some connections, I think, have grown a lot stronger during this period, which, um, you know, probably wouldn't have been the case in a period where we didn't have all this technology available to us. Hmm. Yeah. And I, I also think that because we're all going through the same thing, um, we're all in the same boat. There's really, uh, yeah, the, the connection that grows so much tighter, I think, um, if, if you give space and, and room for that, and uh, which has definitely happened for me personally. And um, so you mentioned yesterday that it was your first day or yeah. first time at the office uh, yes. since the lockdown in March. What what is the immediate impact of the pandemic on your activities at Michael Joseph? Well, I, I, I mean, the obvious one was just that that we, we you know, we, we, I remember it must have been um, it was a Tuesday, March the eighteenth, I think, something like that, and um, we thought initially we might be out of the office for a week, possibly two weeks. Um, mm -hmm. I didn't pack that much. Um, went home, uh, said cheerio to to people um, that I'm incredibly fond of, and. For, you know it would be a brief thing and then um all of a sudden you know it, it, it's it, it's become you know the new normal and um initially I was very concerned as a manager about how I would make sure that the team that I work with would stick together I was very worried about that because um I, I worried that the the sense of purpose that um uh connected us might um 
might disintegrate without all the social contact. So I, I started up a book club. Um, mm. I immediately went onto Amazon and, and um, ordered up a whole load of uh, um, best-selling non-fiction books from the last hundred years or so. Um, so I know this, this sounds terrible, actually, because there was a slightly sort of um, uh, managerial um, angle to it because I thought that, you know, I, I chose books that I thought people would love. Um, uh-huh. Angela's Ashes, Longitude, um, uh, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, you know, and, and what have you. Um, but I deliberately chose books which had sold millions and millions of copies because I do feel, um, you know, there's always so much that you can learn from books that have sold incredibly well. Um, so there's a kind of mildly educative um, uh motive there but it was really I, I just wanted people to feel connected and to give us something that we could be talking about together and a sense of purpose and what I think became quite surprising early on is that um we all adapted you know despite the the different difficulties we might have had domestically we adapted well to to working remotely I think we all found we had um more time for focus um the conversations that we were having once we got used to the technology became more intimate uh mm. and in a really positive way i think um and more focused um you know often with i don't know what your experiences have been marlene but i think often we find that when you're having a zoom meeting rather than turning up to an office room um for the allocated hour and a half or whatever you've you've got a book for and just filling the time you sort of you you, you say what you need to say and, and the meeting often ends with with zoom or these other remote ways of um communicating so it's it's brought a bit of a clarity to what we need to achieve and i mean i think it's not unlinked to that that we're having a really good year i mean there's lots of reasons for that but um i, I think that we found effective ways to work and me i'm i'm no longer having to do a 20-hour commute each week so um you know that's mm. been that's been lovely but it's um you know we're, we're hopefully going to be moving to a more of a hybrid way of working um because it's you know although wearing a mask on the train yesterday was quite odd it was very nice to actually see people when i um when i got into the office hmm yeah, I can imagine that's, uh, you know, it's it's been different for me, obviously, because I was already working. Um, the, the agency has a remote office set up from the very start. Mm. Um, and but it, for me, the, the, the personal connections always happened during my travels. And I was yes. always I was on the road for like three months a year. <laughs> <laughs> so that's been that's been very yeah different and uh, difficult at times. And that's also one of the reasons why I, I started this podcast, because it really has given me um an opportunity to connect at a mm. deeper level yes. with with people that I would have met um or not and also like you and I we've never yeah. actually met no, and, I know. And probably would not have have met um at least not in at this moment had it not no, been for the exactly. podcast Mm-mm. So um, let's talk about the paper that you wrote earlier this year uh, you you finished uh, the paper about how publishing trends are influenced by historical mm. context. And yeah. um, before we, we talk about your findings, I just wanted to hear more about the reasons why you decided to carry out this research <laughs> and cope. Um, mm. When when did you start researching and what were your motivations to do so? 
um, well, I've always been a, a bit of a geek. Um, probably that 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 helps. Um, but I when I when I moved from academic publishing to trade publishing, um, I went from working in a um, in an environment where the model was very very predictable and static. You know, with a with a lot of academic monographs, you um, the sort of the, the the sales range is really very limited uh, and it's therefore predictable. Um, and suddenly found myself in an environment where it seemed to be far more hit and miss and um and I, I i was far less familiar with it and less confident as a result and i this was about i guess 12 13 years ago and i that's when i really started doing a lot of book scan research um yeah. and that's something i i kept up you know well I, i've always kept up every year trying to um look back on the year that's just been to um uh, think about you know what what's worked and why and then I think it was 2016 um, that I I really began to think. Well, I, I'm not satisfied with just looking at the last year um, or the last few years. I want to to go deeper than that. And I think that what precipitated it was um, I had a year where um, I mean 2016 was a uh, if you remember was a pretty weird year. Um, complicated, yes. It was a, yeah, it was a complicated year. A lot of a lot of things seemed to happen that were sort of. Uh-huh. Um, you know, uh, difficult to comprehend. And I, I, I published two books at the tail end of that year, one of which I'd paid quite a lot of money for, which didn't really sell very well. I'm not going to tell you which one it is. Um, I'm slightly embarrassed to admit it. But um, another one which I didn't pay so much money for, um, which sold over 300,000 copies. And I remember hmm. being happy, obviously, but I remember thinking, gosh, I, you know, I, how can I have got that so wrong um, in the sense of just my... My, my ability to predict how what the outcomes were going to be and I, I felt very dissatisfied with myself as a result and thought this isn't good enough and I'm not going to accept that um so much should have to be left to chance I can't be sort of carry on working in this way and and not get better in a way so I, I started um that was kind of the the ignition that started the engine of trying to think well I I, I want to dig deeper you know you're in a period now where um the wealth of book scan data um, is really kind of enormous. And I hesitate to use the expression big data because um, I'm not a statistician or a data mm. scientist, but you know, anyone can look at the, the data surrounding us now and, and, and realize that we have a huge amount of information that we can access and interpretations that we can begin to put on that. And what I wanted to do is to start doing that in a more considered, systematic um investigative kind of way and initially um I, I thought and i think now erroneously um i thought that i might be able to develop um some kind of crystal ball mm-hmm. um some some sales estimation tool um that would would never mean i ended up feeling quite so frustrated ever again and um you know that hearing myself say that I realize how naive that is but I think the the reasons why well the reason why I think it's not possible to do that is because to paraphrase um Donald Rumsfeld who um infamously or famously said that there are known knowns known unknowns and unknown unknowns I think Hmm. what frustrated me at the time was that it felt like um no one really was spending enough time looking at what could be known knowns I think the reality is that within publishing, within any industry like this, I suppose, you are, there will always be unknown unknowns. You mm-hmm. cannot predict, um, you know, a, a, a period like we've just been through or, or going through with the, the pandemic. 
um, which has had a, a, a demonstrable, powerful impact on book markets um, in, in a variety of ways. You cannot predict everything. Um, and I think I had I assumed too little um, of the, the sort of the, the potential for any estimation could be taken up by that. I think a large amount is taken up by it. But I do think at the same time that there's far more that we can know than we perhaps often realise. And one of the things that initially got me um, thinking about that was what I, um, I call in the paper um, uh, peak historical volume. And what I mean by that is simply that, that if you have uh, 400,000 records for books, uh, say from, from you know, uh, a book scan in the UK looking at nonfiction, um, you can look uh, across different areas, um, obviously by genres, but if, you know, you can also, if you, if you want to take the time, start looking more intentionally at motivations across different areas and try and work out what has been the peak historical volume for a particular motivation or a particular type of book or a particular genre. And obviously, the information that BookScan gives you is not going to go back further than, you know, uh, say 20, 25 years in a way that um, is going to allow you to, to extend that. But then you can supplement that research with other um, types of research, looking at book sales and um, bestseller lists going back further. But what I really wanted to do was to, to, to say, well, look, if... Um, if the peak historical volume, say say in the UK, uh, for a book on how to grow vegetables is 152,000 copies, and that's the way it's been for you know 20, 25 years or however long, then my thinking was, well, if you have a new project um, uh, on growing your own vegetables and you assume that it's going to sell more than 152,000 copies, you are you are really betting against the odds. What I thought instead would make sense is to say, well, this is your this is your range, this is your realistic parameter um, within which you should be estimating um, potential sales. So the question then became, well, how do you do that? And what I tried to do, and again, I'm, I'm really I'm no statistician or mathematician, which is probably one reason why I found it very difficult. But I thought. If you establish what you could call a coefficient of variation between zero and the peak historical volume based on uh, separable uh, factors and elements that you could analyze to establish the, the distinct merits of an individual title, then you would be able to arrive at a coefficient of variation, i.e. a number, somewhere between uh, zero and, and that number. And that would be that that was why I got the idea for it being some kind of way to estimate sales. And as I say, I, I, I do think that you can approach things in that way. Um, I think there's a lot of value to be had in, in, in thinking that rigorously about it. But you will never be able to um, uh, allow effectively for those things that you just cannot predict that, you know, Madonna might read a copy of your book and talk about it on Instagram. Um, that's 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 the kind of thing that completely skews the results, I suppose. So it led from there to thinking more about well, what are the ideas here that have a value that I can develop further, um, uh, and and sort of forget about it being a crystal ball, more about it being um, a way of looking at um, book motivations. Hmm. Yeah, I I always say that one of the reasons why I love the work that I do so much is that you never know for sure whether a book is going to sell for me internationally mm. mainly um or not and and once it's published in 
international markets if it's going to sell well there. And of course, there's certain elements that you know whether um, that that help when a book has an impressive track record in its home country or uh, mm. the author is already well known internationally or indeed Madonna or whoever has endorsed it and uh, but yeah, I, I've I've never actually, um, and of course there are certain trends that you, that you see appear internationally as well as as domestically yes. that uh, that you can then kind of surf on. But um, I, I never I never really thought about these specific historical trends and and buyer motivations in such a systemic systematic way. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's that's. Uh, I think it's fascinating. So you mentioned um, that you, well, the, the example that you gave was a nonfiction book in the UK. Are there, in your research, which yeah. uh, I can imagine was just, uh, an, 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 ugh, I can't even begin to imagine how much data you had to process. <laughs> um, did you did you trim anything down? Did you focus on any, on any specific markets, um, countries or languages yeah, uh, and yes, genres I and age groups? I, I did, yeah. and I, I mean, I um, I've I, over the last four years, I suppose, um, I, I've the starting point was very much UK nonfiction. Um, uh, I've I've looked at fiction as well, which has been fascinating in a whole range of ways. Um, I've looked um, uh, at Australia, and New Zealand, um, which I found very interesting for for different reasons, and um, uh, less so the US. I mean, one of the things that I was I, I would love is to be able to um, engage more with um, people around the world in different book markets to, um, to to extend the research into into you know territories like Germany, for instance. I mean, anywhere where BookScan or something similar operates and there's a reliable uh, way to track sales information, this approach, this kind of approach, is something that one could adopt. And I think it's by doing that that you can then start to sort of really interrogate um, how those international trends uh, um, begin to work. So I, in doing it for my starting point, as I say, was to start looking at peak historical volumes um, and the consistency with which certain types of volumes are here. Now, that's that's a really interesting point, I think, because if you look at particular areas, you might see um, a, a book hit over a certain level once every five to 10 years. Now, this this was something which I wasn't really anticipating finding from the research, but I think it's an absolute key part of it, which is that there are cycles in publishing. Now, mm. this is, I think, if you talk to most people who've been around in the industry for a while, it's, it's almost like folk, folklore. Um, people people kind of instinctively know, oh, yeah, there's, there's you know, there are cyclical trends in publishing and, and you know, in other, other types of entertainment as well, perhaps, you know, fashion, I, I don't know, but... In publishing, there definitely are, and I think people know that instinctively and intuitively. Um, what really surprised me was actually finding a lot of evidence to demonstrate that it, they really do exist. And the way that you can do that is by looking at particular areas, particular motivations and genres, and, and trying to establish, well, if you've got an area, for instance, where, um, you know, for a period of five years, the volume is very small, and then suddenly you get an explosion, and then it's it's relatively dormant for another five, ten years, and so on over a period of I don't know twenty, thirty years. You start building up evidence for for cycles, and I, I think there are precise reasons why those cycles exist in in the way that they do. But that was um that was really a sort of um 
a, a consequence of looking at um, genres and motivations in the UK market for nonfiction. Um, and, and in looking at them, fig, fig, figures like that, peak historical volume and, and um, sort of uh, cyclical explosions um, in relation to average yearly volume as well. Um, all of those kind of key indicators um, were things that I just, I, I spent a lot of time dwelling on and absorbing and trying to think through why they were working in that way. Hmm. Yeah. And uh, I, I think indeed that what you mentioned about the, the, the cyclical movement uh i've been in publishing for a bit over 15 years now so i'm starting indeed to to realize that there are certain certain trends uh specifically i think in non-fiction yeah. fiction and, and especially literary fiction is is a lot harder i think to to pin down um yes. but um but i think it's yeah it, it, it's interesting to uh, i think you you concluded that there was like a often a five to ten year uh, cycle, right? For certain, yeah, for certain often. Time. I mean, it depends on areas. I think like certain mm -hmm. areas. I mean, I, the, the way I'd put it is that if if you uh, certain areas allow have have a greater capacity uh, for a greater inherent capacity for variation, I, I suppose, and novelty. That's the key word, actually. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, if you go about memoir as an area, which is, you know, the, the, the biggest area of the, the market for nonfiction, a um, bunch of reasons for that. But but one of them is that one of the reasons why you get so many books selling a big volume comparatively against other areas on a yearly basis is because, you know, no one's life story is quite like anyone else's. So as a, as an, as a, as a format, it, it carries... Um, a huge inherent potential for variation. Yes, you might get um, a stream of books um, that carry similarities. So you might get a whole bunch of books by co comedians, or you might get a whole bunch of books on, you know, medical memoirs, um, mm. and there may be similarities across them. But um, you know, because individuals are different, um, books about individuals by individuals in that in 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 form of autobiography are, are different. You take on the other hand. Um, uh, a book about cleaning your house or um, a book about um, uh, correct pr pronunciation or, or, or grammar rather um, or something uh, something like that and mm. as an area uh, it, it, it represents uh, less potential for variation because only so many, many times in different ways in which you can present this information in a book form and make it a bestseller um, so when you have areas and, you know, another example is puzzle books, because um, although they might sort of um, sell on a sort of relatively low level on a sort of given year, you know, every once in a while you get puzzle books that do phenomenally well. They seem to mm -hmm. kind of break out of that because there's this sort of sensation of novelty attached to them. I think whenever you've got areas where um, there's, there's a more constrained um, inherent potential for, for variation, um, within the sort of creative realms of what a publisher can an author can do with it, then you're more likely to see cycles. And I think of those in a way as dormant volcanoes, because if you find if you find evidence for a five to ten year cycle in an area, and you also find that there hasn't been a book in that area for five to ten years, then I, I, I do think of it rather like a dormant volcano. It's going to go off. It just mm -hmm. needs the right iteration, the right approach to activate that volcano. 
and it, mm-hmm. it that is how it works and I, I've got a lot of evidence that, that, that shows that um the reason I think this works is because of our reaction to novelty um mm-hmm. it's not because there's some kind of vast celestial wheel turning in in the cosmos that dictates like tides you know um when something's going to be appealing to us i think it's because we respond to the sensation that something is good and it feels new um and areas where um it takes longer for something to feel fresh and new again um are those areas where you're more likely to see cycles if that makes sense Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that that definitely makes sense. And so, apart from the, the the cyclical movements, what what other main conclusions did you reach from your research? Um, well, there's a there's a lot that I could talk about, but I think one of the most <laughs> obvious, one of the most obvious ones, and I think one that perhaps leads some, um, you know, into into um, you know, talk, think, talking about um, you know the current period, Marlene, and how uh-huh. it acts on book trends is is that although there's evidence that the cycles work in publishing and I think they almost work independently of the market in so far or the market context in so far as if as I say something has a, a, a novelty to it because of the period um, prior to its publication um, and, and the sort of the, the, the potential of that area to be appealing um, the market also works in a way uh, very clearly that's uh, contextually led and this is um the thing that i think I, you know where i find most fascinating is thinking about how historical context economic political cultural social um impact on what we need and want from books and how that drives sales and again i think it's something which we often um uh feel that we know to be true that in certain periods um or as a, a friend of mine who, 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 who um, works in publishing the States put it, the Bible sell by the bucket load in, in, um, in times of depression is the way he mm-hmm. put it. And <laughs> it's, it's very true. Yeah. So far as mm-hmm. uh, certain um, periods that we go through historically influence, influence us as a group population psychologically in a way that then influences very heavily are motivations for buying certain types of um, books. And that, that applies to both fiction and non-fiction. So the, what, what I've enjoyed most is to try and look back like a um, historical detective, to try and look at the, the fossils of, 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 of book sales from the past and try and work out, well, what was the historical context there that just supercharged people's interest in that book? And what you do see is time and time again is that we're not we don't buy books in isolation we buy books as part of the context we are driven um to find things that will help us deal with what we're going through whether it's for escapism and entertainment or for instruction and um you know you 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 also begin then to see patterns historically uh, as to the kind of things that people look for and to see some very clear correlations between um, events and uh, consumer behaviour. And for me, as someone, again, who um, has a natural interest in trying to think, well, what the hell are people are going to be wanting in the future? What 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 might the period that we're going through drive people to want to buy? The best place, I, I believe, to look is, is not what's happened in the last six to nine months, but it's what's happened in the last 60 to 90 years. And I think that mm. as an industry, and one of my frustrations has been um, that 
we often are, sometimes with good reason, besotted by uh, our recent past. We see something new and shiny sell very well, and we, we are inclined to mimic it. And sometimes there are, you know, limited results that we can get get from that, um, which justify taking that approach. But um, we might be completely ignoring whether or not a book that's been very successful may actually fall within a cycle. So, for instance, you see a, I don't know, a cleaning book, for instance, sell phenomenally mm-hmm. well. You disregard the fact that it's because there's a, a cycle and there's a context in place that might support that happening. You rush out 20 books doing the same thing, um, which don't work. You know, you're ignoring a key part of the, the puzzle, I think, which is that context is, is absolutely key. And I mm-hmm. think it's, it is a frustration of mine. I think that, you know, we, we, we're, we're led by trends, um, but we just need to we'd benefit perhaps from expanding our horizon lines a bit further historically, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's a there's a tendency to look at also content more than context. Mm. Right. So um, I guess that's um, certain. Yeah, certain trends are more. How shall I put it? Um, yeah, as as you say, it's 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 like a shorter term memory in a way. Yes. And um, I yeah, could could you have you applied any specific elements that you've learned uh, to your own work at um, in, in your own you know acquisitions and in general when you work with authors or is it still too soon or no not not at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I feel a bit sort of hesitant to. Um... One example, um, perhaps I could I could give um, it is um, I, I published a, a grammar book. Now, mm-hmm. um, my, the, the reason I published this really was because um, I was conscious of a book called Eat Shoots and Leaves, um, mm-hmm. which was published, I think, in around about 2001 and sold in the UK. Um, uh, something like 1.2 million copies. It's a huge, huge book, and um, I that was one of those books, um, like Longitude, perhaps, or um, Safety World. One of those books that lodges itself in um, sort of a, in publishing um, uh, folklore and uh, sort of common memory. And I, I, you know, it was it was a book which went very well in the UK and the US for obvious reasons to do with English grammar. But um, uh, every five to ten years or so you do get in that area of the market um books uh sort of going above the 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 rather stable uh base level of sales which might be say i don't know ten thousand copies and then suddenly doing something really interesting like selling a hundred to two hundred thousand copies so Mm -hmm. i i identified this as being uh what you might call a, a dormant volcano right um I then felt that, um, you know, w- one thing that had worked so well with that book was um, uh, the title, uh, Eat, Shoots and Leaves, because it it immediately got across by the absence of a comma, um, mm-hmm. uh, a joke, um, and, but also the suggestion that this was a book to do with um, grammar. Mm-hmm. Um, so I came up with a title. Or rather, someone cleverer than I did came up with a title that that fitted the bill, and we used that, and the book did extremely well. And I, you know, I, the, the author in this question was um, a genius, um, incredibly creative, um, 
by far and away the best person I could hope to find, an expert as well as someone who was um, brilliantly capable of delivering it in a way that was erudite yet very funny and accessible. Um, I, I found the dream author to, to do it, but I think there was something about the timing of it as well as the approach of it using that kind of title formulation that was key. Um, um, at least I, I believe so, and I, I think it's that you know you, what what I've in a way I've grown. I've gained more reverence and appreciation for the creativity of, of other publishers, of agents and of authors, um, all of us who work in the industry really, as to all of those magical things that get brought to a book. And I don't for one second think that just because you identify a cycle is going to mean that you can activate it. I think it's, 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 it's only that it was that simple. You need to find the dream author. You need to find the right title. You need to find all of these things. And, mm. and you need to have the right publishing approach for it to deliver. But I think that what I feel my research has shown is that if you do find um, the right context for something to work, if you do find um, that you can you can slip into a cycle, then what you do is you dramatically increase your... Um, the, the probability that you're going to achieve um, a bestseller um, doesn't guarantee it, but I think that there are reasons why that will really help you. So I think what I've done is to try and um, inform my publishing and the things I look for um, by trying to really think um, really more about less about the cycles and I, than more about context. And mm-hmm. just to sort of um, to summarise the thinking on that, because I think it's um, it's I guess in a way it was one of the key things I feel I've discovered is that I feel that we look we look for answers in books, mm-hmm. and we look for antidotes. They're almost like medicine sometimes. And I think that um, the prescription, if you will, is is not always the same, but. Mm-hmm. The way, a way that you could characterize it and simplify it is to say that the books in a way work in an oppositional way to what we're going through so if you're feeling despair a book that offers hope may do well if you're feeling out of control a book that gives you a chance to feel in control may do well if you're feeling just utterly exasperated and fed up with the world then humor might work and and so on and mm-hmm. i think that, that that's a sort of that's a key learning for me is that rather than simply trying to mirror back to a book market uh, and a, a reading population what it's already feeling, the better mm. approach is to find an answer or a solution or something to a salve to, to what people are feeling. And that that is, I feel, more often than not, where you really see huge book sales because people gravitate towards these books because it's, it gives them something they don't already have. So it therefore represents some kind of value to them, but it also yeah. helps them live their life more happily, more meaningfully um, than they might have otherwise done. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, sp- and speaking out uh, about situations out of control and feeling anxious and <laughs> um, <laughs> the period that we live in right yeah. now, uh, of course, is uh, COVID-19, the pandemic has yes. um, had a ma- massive impact on yes. our daily lives. And y- you finished writing your paper right before the start of it. But yeah. what are your thoughts? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> It's interesting well, timing. Yeah, um, I mean, I... I, I, I thought I thought that I had in a sort of the form of a late motif. I had um, I thought I, I thought Brexit was going to be good enough, but um, <laughs> um, little but did it, you know. <laughs> little did I know. 
Um, and I, yeah, there, I, there was a period I thought, damn it, you know, maybe I should have, um, I, 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 because I, what I've been doing is, um, you know, every few weeks I've been, I've been pausing and just looking internationally, looking at what, what has been selling, um, in different markets around the world, as far as I can, I can judge. And that for me has been fascinating because I think mm. that, I mean, one of, one of the things that you can immediately observe is that in, 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 in a lot of markets, I suppose that the, um, the, the dominance of Amazon, um has been you know an immediate sort of market um retail response because people haven't been able to go out to the the conventional bricks and mortar shop so you see a greater volume going for amazon that's one thing but what amazon sales also um you know do is you can see by what's selling um quite directly what people are gravitating towards as they go up and down and that's obviously you know um not something you can you can necessarily do with a, another retailer so i think mm. with this higher volume of traffic going through um uh online retail it's been amazing just to sort of look around and and, and think gosh you know that those five books, those key five books are doing phenomenally well in Spain and they just won't stop selling. There's something about them. And look, you know, four of them are doing incredibly well in Italy or what have you. And, mm-hmm. and you know, as I've been looking over the last um, period, um, it's been astonishing to see certain um, trends um, happen ubiquitously and... Um, simultaneously so what i mean is that i mean I, and again some of them we probably know intuitively to be true that you know people have a lot of parents have a look for um you know books for their children so you've seen a sort mm-hmm. of um uh, you know the market complexion change in that way but early on um albert camus um the plague uh was um in the top 100 on amazon of pretty much every country i i looked at i think it was i think it was the second best-selling book in japan as far as i could i could tell mm. at one point um yeah and that was interesting and I, I remember i was talking to um i think it was an italian um friend of mine who described it as plague literature um huh. uh, and it, <laughs> you know with along with a couple of other uh, titles and what was i think is interesting about it is that early on um people were you know thinking my god what what are we going through now where can we look for answers where can we look to understand what we're living through and they gravitated towards a book by a a french existentialist philosopher um from i think the early 1960s at the same time there was a, a film um called contagion i think that was um trending number one on uh amazon as a film uh, a film that was produced, I think, maybe 10, 15 years ago, which um, uh, with eerie prescience um, uh, envisaged a, a, a situation rather like we're, we're now going through. And I think in both cases, you know, on, on the one hand, for a Hollywood film and the other hand, through a, um, you know, a work of um, a literature by a, ph- a philosopher, people are looking to, to try and make sense of their situation. So early on, that was quite a dominant theme, I think um so uh, you know uh, as, as time has gone on i think one of the things i draw out because i could talk about this endlessly and, and bore you absolutely senses marlene so i won't do that but um picking up on the sense of um <laughs> p- picking up on the that, that notion that we look for 
I think it's in a somewhat oppositional way we look for antidotes. I think that mm-hmm. it's not been surprising to me um, at all. In fact, it's something I predicted um, uh, quite early on. If that doesn't sound a bit hubristic, um, I, I really thought the resilience and self-deficiency um, mm-hmm. uh, were going to become um, growing themes, and uh, they have. And 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 in, in ways they're quite broad. So, for instance, one thing that's been so interesting is you see um, a book called Rich Dad Poor Dad uh, by Robert Kiyosaki, um, which has been—I mean, that's that's been selling as far as I can tell a huge volume in, in almost every market. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a book from, I think, it might be the, the 90s. Um, and then alongside it, um, a book from 1937 by Napoleon Hill called Think and Grow Rich. And often you see, mm-hmm. the, you see the two books sort of, um, you know, sort of bobbing around together. And mm-hmm. that's fascinating, I think, because both of these books are what you'd call backlist books. Um, that's you know, written quite a long time ago, certainly in the case of Napoleon Hill, um, which, let's not forget, was written alongside um, Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People in a, a period of depression in America. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, these are books which, despite not being novel um, in the sense of having just been written, they carry a sense of urgent novelty and importance and quality to a readership right now that is looking for ways to feel financially resilient. Now, if you've got a, a situation where you may be feeling you cannot trust your government or your company to keep you financially secure, mm-hmm. a book that comes along and shows you, look, I'm going to show you how to be a rich dad. I'm going to show you how you can think and grow rich. What an mm-hmm. appealing concept. It will do well. And they are doing well. But also that that sense of resilience, um, and, and self-sufficiency is translating into um, books to do with health, um, uh, uh, books to do with spirituality. I mean, one of the, the fascinating things is seeing this growth of um, what you might call fable-like, parable-like um, books that offer some kind of spiritual comfort and sense of optimism. So um, Paolo Coelho's um, The Alchemist has been mm. um, sort of increasing in its, its volume. Um, you know, and these are sort of um, so it's, it's touching on self-sufficiency and resilience again, I suppose, but in a, in in the in the terrain of spirituality. Um, so these are kind of big themes, big macro themes and motivations, which are um, uh, you know casting their inflection on a range of different um, uh, genres. Um, so as you can tell, I could I could talk about this endlessly. So I should probably <laughs> <laughs> edit myself a bit. Yeah. No, no, no. This is this is all really very interesting and and it kind of confirms um what I've been hearing and seeing while talking to to people from around the world and and receiving requests for titles that we represent there's a there's a strong or there's an increase in interest for for backlist mm. titles indeed yes, that yeah. there's um titles that may have already sold in in six, seven, eight. 10, 9, 10 territories, but not yes. yet in Japan. Or um, yes. we suddenly get a sale for that. And the book has been out for three, four years and nothing particular was happening around it. But suddenly there's this offer. <laughs> so it's, mm. uh, it, and I've seen that a couple of times already since since the start of the, the pandemic. So it's definitely um, kind of a search for, for books that, uh, that have already um, withstood um, 
in a way or that have that have a track record in in other countries mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. um are this that present less risk as as well obviously I, I, there's, think, I uh, think that's part of it yeah mm -hmm. i mean it's fascinating you saying that and i i think it's for me i i i interpret that as a very very strong indication of um strong contextual motivations at play because why else would you look up a book that's five six years old we don't typically do that but we do it mm -hmm. now we are doing it now across the board because we are deliberately searching out for books that will do something for us quite specific you know you might say i i specifically need this book right now and when we find those books and if we also find that they have a, a an international track record then great I want it. I, I need it right now. Camus is a sort of good example, I suppose, isn't mm -hmm. it? Um, so I think it's 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 a fascinating period. You know, this period has been so many things, and I'm not for once, um, you know, sort of belittling it or trying to reduce it to sort of some kind of academic study. But you know, it's been awful and and, and terrible for, for 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 many of us. But I mm -hmm. think in, as a way to sort of understand better how context interplays with why we buy books. I think it is an incredible um, period to be um, looking around and, and studying. Hmm. And yeah, and what are your thoughts? I know you mentioned that um, it was impossible to create a crystal hmm. ball, but uh, <laughs> uh, could you or would you mind trying to extrapolate from your research and you know, kind of brainstorm or think freely about what may happen? Yeah knowing the times that we live in 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 the next decade or so yeah i know absolutely i would and i mean i um i mean this is all sort of you know speculation obviously but i i mean mm -hmm. I, i do think that i mean the way i approach it is to think well as much as one can do trying to think about well what what's the context going to be like and how's that going to make us feel mm -hmm. um you know how are we going to feel next year for instance and um and and you know for the years after that well you know, of course you don't know, but what you can do is make an educated guess and then try and relate it to a historical period. So, um, uh, you know, when when else might we have felt this way? Um, when else might we have felt, um, you know, as we will do next year, I suppose. And and then to say, well, what was working then? So mm. early on, um, I, I, um, I think mistakenly, I, very mistaken. I thought I thought everything was going to be over in the space of about a month or two. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of us probably did. We were all and, in there. That's <laughs> <laughs> um, far from being the case. But I, I one of the things I was uh, thinking, well, I, I thought, well, I should probably be thinking about how people have felt and responded in book buying trends um, uh, in the wake of um, massive seismic um, epoch-defining um, world events. So the immediate things I, I, I looked at were um, uh, World War One and World War Two, uh, and also to a less extent the financial um, crisis in 2008. And one of the things, this is a bit of a, a, a sort of a, a sidetrack, but I think it's interesting is, you know, again, a, a bit of common knowledge, I think, is, uh, um, well, you know, most people I know would probably say, well, yeah, poetry it was exploded in popularity uh popularity um in the wake of the first world war hmm. you know, had um, a, a lot of very famous um poems uh, poets and uh, poems um in both uh, the states and um the uk um in uh, the years 1918 1919 hmm. and i was fascinated to see well did something similar happen after the second world war did we all gravitate towards poetry was there something about that period of having just escaped through something 
um, where we, uh, we, 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 we look for something, you know, very similar in book form. And the answer, I think, is kind of yes and no. Um, we didn't look for poetry, but there was an explosion of a conventionally rather quiet area of the market, but it was more in um, cartoons and humour books. And you look at, um, you know, the, the, the years following the Second World War in terms of the American um, bestsellers charts, and you have it almost dominated by um, this kind of it's joyful, um, exuberant, um, humorous um, approaches, you know, cartoons, um, uh, The Egg and I. I mean, these, these are books that somehow celebrate life. And, and there's almost this kind of relief, this um yeah, total relief at having come through it in, in jubilation. I think that was a very different feeling um, from from the the, the, you know, the first world war, where I think perhaps people were so so deeply traumatized and scarred by what had happened that the you know the poetry was the only way that, that, that anything they could gravitate towards. But one thing it, it, again is is similar. Two, well, two things are similar. Mm-hmm. You, you had an explosion of a, a, a relatively typically quiet area of the market um and i i would argue that's probably because you had um in the case of the second world war almost a suppressed motivation um through those years you also had an upsurge in um in, in big grand history um at the end of both wars there were there was a big significant um uh books on history published uh, that did very well, and you also have this upsurge in, um, I guess, sort of spiritual self-development, and I, I, or just general self-development. And I think that in both cases, you could say, well, during the Second World War, for example, you, the desire to go into a bookshop and ask for a cartoon book hmm. was probably, uh, you know, I mean, who would do that? Um, who would go into a bookshop during the Second World War and say, I want a big book on history, and the, the the guy selling the books would say, well, you're living through history right now. History is changing every day. Now's mm. not the time to read history. And likewise, I wouldn't go into a bookshop and perhaps buy a book uh, about how to better myself when we as a, a global population are going through something that's so severe. So I would argue that these were almost um, motivations that became repressed during that period and then had an explosion afterwards. So one question to ask then is, well, are there any motivations right now that feel like they're being suppressed? Because if mm. there are, then there's a pretty good indication or a pretty good um, reason to think that they may, there may be an explosion in that area um, when people no longer feel constrained and unable to um, to explore it or to access mo- those motivations. Um, just as a sort of another follow-on point and, and related more, I guess, to the, the, the credit crunch, um, the financial crisis, is to do with very um, periods of economic um, depression, and again, mm-hmm. I think it's perhaps sort of fairly sort of um, well known that you know nostalgia publishing tends to do quite well in those periods, and I think it's that is true, and there's lots of examples of that. I think as we we almost inevitably lurch towards a period of prolonged economic depression, it's worth then thinking about what are the types of books which have worked well in periods in the past where we've had to to, to, to go through uh, economic depression. And um, books, nostalgia books that take us back, typically to our grandparents' generation, um, tend to do well. So in the 1970s, you might have been looking back to the Edwardian era in, in the UK. Um, in the, you know, the, 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 the sort of around the credit crunch, you might have been looking back to the 1950s. 
each case you're looking back about 50 to 60 years because mm-hmm. I think perhaps you know you, you know what you learned from your parents probably you probably feel that your great-grandparents generation uh, may not teach you something that has immediate practical value in the present day but it's almost as though people search for more information about how their grandparents generation may have lived that's my that's my hypothesis anyway so i think we'll see more mm. stuff in that space i think that um you know again to that point about oppositional um um motivations i think we will look more for books that offer a sense of um hope uh reassuring certainty um and optimism and that's already beginning to dominate the market i think um yeah. you could say in the uk and i think it's going to continue to hmm. Hmm. Well, thank you for for this. I I know again, it's uh, time will tell, right? <laughs> but uh, but it's 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 really interesting to yeah to to hear your thoughts on that. Um, yeah, I I think I've taken up um, a lot of your time already. Is there is there anything that I missed during this interview that you'd like to mention before um, we wrap it up? Well. Um... I, I want to say I'm very grateful to you for reaching out, Marlene. And, um, you know, I I think it's one of the lovely things about this period, as we were saying earlier, is about reaching out to people you might not otherwise have um, come into contact with. And I, I'm full of admiration for the podcast series you've been running. I think mm, there's been something you. really special about being able to, although we may have been individually stuck in our bedrooms or office spaces or kitchens to be actually um, reaching out further afield and, um, you know, uh, having more of a, a relationship with people overseas. I think that's a lovely thing. And so thank you for for, for asking me and inviting me. Um, the other thing is slightly on the same note is that um, I don't feel like I've discovered any sort of, um, you know, a, a crystal ball. I feel that, as I say, I've gained more reverence really for this wonderful industry that we work in and more mm. appreciation of it, more wonder uh, in a way at it. But I, I love learning and I love asking these questions. And, um, you know, I, my, my background is really as a, as a nonfiction publisher, as you know, and um, I, I've got some a lot of thoughts about how um, context, for instance, in, instance um, impacts fiction um, historically. And, you know, I, I, I do hope that if anyone listened to this um mm-hmm is inclined to do so that they feel free to reach out because talking about books and why they sell is just um as far as i'm concerned just about the most interesting thing you can do <laughs> yes I, I i definitely second that um well yeah thank you so much for for your time and um sharing this very precious information i i learned a lot and the the paper that you wrote hasn't been published yet but not, um not i'll yet. make sure Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll make sure once it is to to add a link or to add information on where our listeners can find it uh, once it is published. Thank you. And um, yeah, well, have a lovely evening <laughs> and um, <laughs> we'll speak soon. Thank you so much, Dan. All right. Take Bye-bye. care, Marlene. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Make Books Travel podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Check out the agency's website, 2CsAgency.com, for more information and resources about the international publishing scene. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a positive review. Merci et à la prochaine!